As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, we're offering a special discount for joining PokerXFactor.com. You can qualify for a massive $70 off your sign-up. All you need to do is enter promotional code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-7-0. Tremendous pleasure today uh, to have Alex Fitzgerald on so soon after I had him on the podcast last time. This time we're hoping it's going to be a sort of regular podcast with us both. Uh, a lot of people have contacted myself and said, you know, why don't you get Assassinato back on and stuff. And I've had him on twice, but people keep wanting more. And Alex has had similar feedback. So we've decided to try and do a regular podcast together. As this is the first one, it's going to be very sort of make up as we go along. And we'll see. We'll just sort of see what happens. How are you, Alex? I'm great, Barry. Thank you for having me again. Uh, how, are, how are you? Yeah, yeah. Everything's good. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, if you follow me on Twitter at oneouter.com, you'll see over the last week, myself and Alex, who is at The Assassinato, and we've been sort of putting out there for people to email in questions that we, you know, when we knew we were going to be doing the show. And uh, several people, I'd like to say several thousand, but it's not. It's <laughs> se- several people have uh, came in with some questions and stuff. So we want to make that a sort of regular part of the show. Um as I say, it's the first one, so it's going to be very sort of make it up uh, as we go along. But definitely one thing we both agree on is we're going to try and keep it like interactive, which will mean like listeners messaging through Twitter or Facebook or emailing Alex or myself with questions for the podcast. And we're thinking about doing it every two weeks. So it'll be a sort of like mailbag come poker clinic as much as Alex can do, you know, in a podcast uh, format of just questions that uh, you guys have got with poker. And also, it doesn't even have to be strategy, but just, you know, Alex has been there and done that and, you know, bust bankrolls and rebuilt from nothing and stuff. So actually, from a personal point of view, I like to hear a lot of those stories and questions. So (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, everyone likes a drama, you know, in poker. So definitely, uh, definitely. So if you have anything like life-related questions and stuff, then, you know, Alex will do my, uh, even myself, if it's something else, I can, I can sort of, uh, you know, help out as well with some questions. So the first thing we were going to say is uh, if you make sure you follow Alex on Twitter, he is available at The Assassinato, that's T-H-E-A-S-S-A-S-S-I-N-A-T-O, and myself is at oneouter.com, that's uh, at O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M. And if you could also like the Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash oneouter. And check out Alex's site, pokerheadrush.com. Now, it might sound like a bit of spam there, but that's really just as many avenues as I can give you to get in touch with me and Alex with questions, you know, and we'll we'll do our best to answer them and give you guys some value, you know, with your poker games and poker lives in general. So um, how, how's your grind going just now, Alex? Have you been playing much? Uh, are you doing more coaching? I, I've been doing more consulting work lately. I, I've, I play Sundays. I watch over the very few horses I have, and I'm not looking to get any more, so please do not contact me. But do contact me about coaching, assassinatocoaching at gmail.com. Sorry for all yep. the plugs, but uh, 
I mean, one of the reasons we do this is to get our name out there as well as help you guys. But yeah, I've been doing a lot of consulting work. I'm doing, uh, looking over the horses for a lot of backers. A lot of backers have the money, but they don't really have the time to look over mm. their horses. So I do a little, uh, little more now of managing the schedules, making sure they're playing adequately to still be today's games, watching a lot of hand histories, discussing plays that really work versus the fields these days that they might not find in tra uh, training videos. And yeah, honestly, that's been playing me, paying me far more consistently and uh, a little more than MTTs ever did. I mean, I'm sure my best year of MTTs will never touch what I'm doing right now, but it, uh, mm -hmm. it definitely is much more stable and it is going pretty well. I'm blessed to say. That's, that's interesting. So you're, you're looking over existing horses, but I don't know if you said there, are you looking at like when, if they're taking on new horses, you're sort of screening them as well before they're sort of signed up. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like any other business there that, you know, there's companies and there's hot, people who hire people and, you know, weed out who's good, weed out who's not, uh, doing a lot of consulting work to make sure their company runs a little more properly. Just about yeah. a year ago, I noticed there was a niche for this that a lot of the coaches that got hired really didn't care about what they were doing. And they really just wanted to grind and maybe devote one hour every few days to taking care of horses. And I just, you know, I turned around, I said, these are my fees. Uh, and I'll actually really look over these guys, really talk to them a lot. And that's been, yeah. So when somebody's backing, say 60 different people, maybe he doesn't have the time to watch all of their hand histories, but if they, you know, have five people to watch over the really low stakes guys, and then I manage the high stakes guys, then you have a much better shot of coming out ahead on the, uh, ahead of this, even if you have to maybe pay a little more upfront. Yeah. I had uh, Sheets on the podcast, uh, I think it was last year, um, maybe actually the year before that, and he was talking about staking and you know, running a stable and stuff, and he says, like, how sharp a guy, without, you know, blowing his own trumpet, you know, how sharp he is and how sharp uh, Johnny Bax is, and they didn't have enough hours in the day to manage their stable sort of thing, you know? Right. And I so think, it just shows you. I think they took on, I think they bit off a little more than they could chew. I, I think yeah. they were back in half the world at one point. Yeah, there's just not <laughs> enough, there's just not enough hours in the day. I, when I used to back privately, you know, I had a bunch of really good guys, and uh, uh, we I've kind of indicated in the past we had some disagreements, and some of them uh, were financial. So I'm not going to say their names, but you do know who they are. We came, mm -hmm. you know, we came to an agreement, and I agreed not to really talk about it, but they. Uh, Obviously, if they had a future backer and the guy did anything bad, I would let them know. But it was just more a disagreement, not anybody like directly stealing. Anyhow, mm -hmm. very long-winded way to say it. Even just having a few guys, like having to do all the business administration stuff along with teaching people how to play is really burdensome and really difficult. I, I'm really lucky, well, blessed to just be working as far as what I enjoy, which is how are we going to get – you know, I can teach myself how to beat MTTs, but I only play however much I want to play because I'm old and withered in 25 now, not yeah. spry in 18. But if I can get all 15, 20, 60 guys beating a particular limit, that's kind of a power trip, you know, mm -hmm. and take a piece obviously is nice. But yeah, I, I had tremendous 
awe for what sheets and backs were doing, <laughs> the numbers of people they had on at one point. And obviously, I don't know if they're still at that point now, but I could definitely see how it could become difficult. Yeah, yeah. So uh, another thing I was going to talk about with, uh, obviously, every time I've had you on, we've talked about full tilt stuff and that. You know, I must be like sort of guy that reminds you, you know, of the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. So, uh, but I myself, because like in the UK and Europe now, it's kind of all, you know, stars have bought them over. You can deposit everything's fine. I got all my what little money I had in it and stuff back and whatever. I've kind of stopped following as much, you know, all the, the ins and outs of the latest development and stuff. But I did see something on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, maybe. And I like retweeted the link in case it was any of use to anyone. But it seems to be that that's really starting to pick up pace now with like some forums and stuff. The, the process seems a bit clearer that you've you've now to go to the, you know, somewhere, fill out the form and stuff, and it's going to start getting looked at. Um, what about, I mean, we spoke about your situation last time and you know how all that was sort of going out but is that is things any further forward there or uh you know consistently you bring it up and i don't really give it much thought and then i feel bad because every time i give a very negative answer if <laughs> i i mean i think this process began a while ago and now you fill out a formula and they're supposed to send you emails and it's you know i as for they still seem to be in the infancy of doing anything, but yeah, I'm sure it's going to get done in the future. And I'm, I'm very thankful we're going to get anything back. I, I had friends with a large amount of money in ultimate bet and other sites that went under and it, to get anything back will be nice. Just, uh, yeah. it just, yeah, you know, you're starting to see a ray of hope come out. It's, it's nice, but I kind of, in my mind, that money doesn't exist. I have to, if it comes back, fine, but I'll probably just, I'll use it. I, I want to build a business that doesn't rely on that money coming in. And then hopefully when that money comes in, I can use it to pay other things that are pressing at this moment. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so oh, another, maybe on a positive note, the scoop uh, schedule was announced and stuff. Uh, I know you're busy with a coaching and consulting just now. But obviously, like as a player and an MTT, are these sort of big festivals, like online festival events, are are your sort of bread and butter? And maybe not your bread and butter, but what you look forward to, you know, you hope to do well. And you obviously had a great uh, series last year. Was it the W Coop? Yeah, it was, um, it was W Coop. Yeah. So, like, what's your sort of thoughts with the scoop coming up and that? Are you looking to play like basically every, you know, hold them event in that and, you know, all the different the scoops, you know, the different buy-in levels and stuff, or are you maybe going to sort of pick and choose your events a bit more? I, I tend to pick and choose my events a bit more. I, I don't go to... The, the one thing is No Limit Hold'em is very popular all over the world now. There is always a big tournament somewhere. And if you ever want to get right back in the thick of it, you can do it. You can work your way up and play a lot of these tournaments. Now, just being someone who's played high stakes for a number of years, I, of course... I do hunger for it. I do want to play more. But at the same time, just looking over my fa financials of the last few years, just making hundreds of thousands of dollars, blowing it, making it, blowing it, and mm. going up and down, I pick and choose a little more what I want to do, where I want to travel. I love the scoops and the F-tops because I just get to stay at home and relax. But it does kind of conflict with my work now. So that becomes mm. difficult. I'll still try to play most of the Hold'em events. I really love the... Annie up event 
You know, yeah. You know, because I feel like everybody plays that hor- that format horribly. Just mm-hmm. they they either raise way too much or not enough. And uh, what's the other? Are there Zoom tournaments this time around? I think there is. I was watching uh, some of the EPT coverage and they were speaking about it. And I th- I think the Zoom tournament is there is because they had a Zoom tournament in the micro millions there. Uh-huh. So I've not had a pr- I've not had a proper look at the scoop schedule but i i would say that there is i mean i could probably check uh, there probably now. is i mean if they, i think there is if they could do it in micro millions they their server could probably handle the 200 or 300 people regging for a high stakes one but yeah, yeah. that that one i i feel like people there there's some considerations in rush our zoom poker tournaments i feel like people don't take take advantage of and one thing that's an advantage for me is i don't feel the need to just play every single tournament every day. I've been doing that for years. I made the money, lost it, made the money again. I, I don't feel any thrill as much as I used to. So I do get to pick and choose a little more. And if you can just play a couple tables and play a Zoom or Rush poker table, it's amazing because there's a lot of regs that are just autopiloting, uh, autopiloting while they're playing many other tables and they just give up their blinds so much or just raise and just see back give up on a number of different boards, especially when they have the, uh, the illusion that they're going to get so many more opportunities or why should I try to deal with this guy right now and get angry with him? I'll just be at a new table later. And then hopefully the only time they come to the realization they're going to have to deal with me is later on in the tournament where I had a bunch of chips. I played, I won a, I can't remember if it was a $24 or $50 rush tournament on full tilt. And it was, a, mm-hmm. I just played it for fun one day when I wasn't really doing much of anything. And that was like one of the f- most fun tournaments I'd ever played in my life. Just going final few tables and just seeing how much people let things go because of the speed of the tournament. I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to a scoop event like that. Yeah. It's interesting. You touched on something that I was going to bring up later, but it's, it's a good time to bring it up now. You're just saying like you played, you know, tournaments day in, day out. You've done that for years and stuff. Um, even myself, with like grinding, you know, the 180s and that for the last year and a half to, you know, to two years, stuff like that. And on other sites and stuff, smaller tournaments. I just kind of feel like when you start like multi-tabling, like I got Table Ninja and obviously like started playing like 15 to 20 tables. And I just kind of feel like it does. It becomes like the sort of grind. That you, you become a bit jaded with it and like can't even be bothered with poker news and stuff, right? Right, but right. The few other weeks, uh, sorry, a couple of weeks ago, the EPT London was on and I stuck the live coverage on it, like in the background, you know, the stream while I was doing other stuff. And I got really into it again for the first time in God knows how long, like I could actually be bothered, you know, watching like live stream of poker. And I just started to, like, enjoy it or something. And some some guy tweeted you the other day. Or, he, no, he made a comment on your Pocket Fives article or something. And he said, like, uh, oh, Assassinato makes me, like, excited or want to play, excited to play poker again or something. And you've touched on it with me privately before and stuff about, like, cutting down tables and maybe just playing a few and focusing. And I, I think, how important do you think that is to sort of, like, keep it fresh and keep your sort of, you know, you can just autopilot, you know, load up 20 with 180 mans and just grind for like six hours. You know, it's like, it's very systematic. I mean, there's a few regs and stuff that I'll play, you know, you'll adapt and stuff against, but 
pretty much you're doing the same things day in, day out. And uh, I just feel like I played Sunday there, like five tournaments, six tournaments. I just really enjoyed it again, you know, just by like thinking through stuff and that. Right. So like how, how important do you think that is? I think, I think it's extremely important. Uh, one thing I do with a lot of my horses is one of the first things we do is cut down the tables. There, there, I can't tell you how many guys I've had come up to me that said, I've made money every single year from 2007 to 2011, and 2012 was my worst year ever. I lost $100,000, $150,000. I said, well, what'd you do last year? I don't know. I 12, 16 tabled every day, played 10 hours a day. It just didn't work out. And mm-hmm. it's, well... You know, back in 2008, Johnny Bax could play, you know, when he was playing 12, 16 tables, everybody was playing dead basic and couldn't really deal with a guy who was actually thinking a couple steps ahead. Now, there's a lot of guys who really know how to play No Limit Hold'em. If you want to gain an edge on people, you need to slow down when you're actually playing. You need to ask yourself more questions as you're actually, as you're playing. I made an article for PocketFives.com called Be Your Own Leadership. It was... Uh, you can Google it. It's about coaching yourself. And something I have my guys do too is I have them record their sessions with them talking to themselves. StarCraft players, uh, chess chess masters, guys who make much, much less than poker players, there's, there's grandmasters in Russia that give chess lessons for $20 an hour because they're so broke. The high, yeah. highest earning StarCraft player, and StarCraft is a sport in South Korea. I went, mm. I went to the mall there. I saw the 200-inch screens. I saw it. The highest earner there has made 40000 a year, and that's a guy who plays. And this guy literally plays 80 hours a week, watches every session he plays to find little mistakes he finds. And I, I thought to myself, just being a fan of other games, and there's no other, there's no athlete who didn't watch a ton of game film. Michael Jordan did it all the time. Mike Tyson, everybody talks about what a brute he was, but he became addicted to studying other fights. He, him and uh, I think his name was Gus D'Amato, his original mm-hmm. trainer would watch so many fights over and over again and just pick up on all the little tricks of the greats and what they didn't exploit upon. And if you actually watch yourself, playing six, eight, ten tables. You should record yourself when you're playing all the tables you're playing. You'll be amazed if you kick back, take out that HDMI cable, hook up your laptop to the TV, and you just watch yourself relax. You will be amazed how many spots you're missing. And just the sheer feeling of embarrassment will get you to stop doing it. And if you six-table and articulate your thought process, it's just like learning how to drive the first time. The first time you learned how to drive, you had to probably talk to yourself like, okay, I need to turn this tur- turn signal on. I have to do this, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, once it becomes a habit, you don't need to do it anymore. But to reassign new habits to your mind, it's really good to try, observe, observe what happened, and realign yourself. And one of the best ways you can do this is by recording. And you'll be amazed how many more spots you find when you're actually slowing down, taking time. The other thing is to just be studying constantly. I really hated poker a few years ago. I'd, it'd taken me for a great ride, but I wasn't learning anything new, and I just wasn't mm-hmm. really enjoying it. And then I started doing lessons, to be honest, just because I needed the money. I was so broke because of so many bad financial and life decisions. And that's when I really started enjoying the game again because 
there were so many pots I just I mean there were so many spots and pots I just took for granted that when I actually dug in because these students asked me well why do you do this and no longer could I just say it's in every training video I've ever seen I had to actually come up with an answer once you start seeing that 90, 95% of people just follow trends in poker and there's no mathematical or theoretical or experience-based reason for much of what they do, you'll become much more excited for poker. However, there, it, is, it, is kind of a, it is kind of a two-edged sword. I don't watch televised poker anymore. I just – it feels like work to me. I can't mm-hmm. – when you do take it to this level, I do get excited. I love poker, but kind of in the way – I never I played I played football for 12 years, American football. No, 10 years. I can't remember. But probably because I played too much of it. But <laughs> I I've never watched an American football game all the way through in my life. I can't handle it. I'm not a fan. I want to be out there playing. And you do have to kind of not be as much of a fan with poker. You should get invigorated and I really envy people that get really invigorated watching another great player play. And you should be very selfless and accepting of how that player is better than you. But at some point, you really do have to you do have to find love in the really hard work. And you should also enjoy watching high six poker, watching the live feeds, watching your favorite players play. Maybe I don't have enough of that latter one and maybe a little too much of the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think it also it's a, a finding that balance in terms of like playing enough sort of volume to sort of make your money and not just autopiloting as well, isn't it? It's finding that sort of uh, sweet spot of tables that you're playing. Right. That's a, that's a really good point. I think you need to find your bread and butter game. I, when I was 19, 20, I got on the EPT 20 and I just was burning money. Like you couldn't believe just because they usually put this place in bum effed nowhere and the nearest Motel 6 is a 40-minute drive, so you're going to spend that much on a taxi anyway. So you got to stay at the five-star hotel, pay $6 mm-hmm. a Coke when you pull it out of the mini bar, And you have to kind of grind from there. And I was just going through money, and I was freaking out because I was going up and down in tournaments. And I just started playing 100 NL. And at the time, there were not professional 100 NL players. When people saw me play a 10K EPT, then wake up the next day at six in the morning to grind this Russian site and, you know, just have my breakfast and my coffee there. People were just mocking me. My friends were just, are you serious? But then I was making five, six, 7,000, 10,000 a month playing hundred NL, just hundred NL. And I really got a lot of the basics down and I was allowed, I could kind of free my mind a bit because I wasn't so worried about the money. And then when I did go to play tournaments, it was, it was very fun. Obviously, it was for a backer. If I was just dumping 20000 in uh, tournament buy-ins every month, I probably wouldn't be feeling that good. But yeah. just having that stable basis is really good. That's why I tell a lot of my students, if you speak a language that's not English and poker is starting to become famous in your country, get out there and start writing things. Even if I was wildly off on a lot of the things I wrote at the beginning, but at the time, nobody else knew better. And I did learn more the more I put myself out there. And people realize this is somebody who is really putting themselves out there and has put thought into this. Maybe I want to back this person or maybe I want to learn from this person. And if you can just I – I have some friends of mine that are coaches in Latvia and you know their rent was just such a worry every month. And now that they're 
making money from coaching. It's just no problem and they can focus on their game a lot more. If you make your money in dollars too and the local currency is not very strong versus the dollar, you you can do pretty well coaching as well or doing other work outside of poker. But yeah, it's a business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting sort of when, when, when you talk about that and it's it's how many people out there are just sitting down and mindlessly grinding every day, you know, yeah. and sort of just treading water. And um, it just seems like, I think it's obviously, I think if we're all being honest, you sort of start thinking like that when you're in the midst of a downswing or that. You never think like that when, uh, you know, you're winning and the money's coming in. You never think, oh, I should really, you know, cut down my tables or I should, <laughs> I should be, uh, poker should be like a slave to me. I shouldn't be a slave to poker type thing. Right. Um, I think when you're going down, that, that, I suppose that's the good thing about a downswing. It does make you sort of stop, take, take check and sort of like reevaluate and stuff. Right. I suppose it's healthy. Yeah, it's, it's funny because the way people approach downswings should be the exact opposite. And this is a big reason I pick a lot of horses that <clears throat> I get some exemplary. I, you, there's a lot of words I write and I never pronounce until I'm talking with you. And then I realize just how horribly I speak English. There's, <laughs> I get some excellent ho- horse applications, some excellent potential players. But if their default is when they get into makeup to panic and start swinging for the fences, it's never going to work out. Do you think Phil Ivey, like when you watch Phil Ivey play on full tilt back in the day, if things didn't go good for him, he did not care about decorum. He did not care about being polite. If he played 10 minutes and he felt like Phil Galfon was going to waste his ass that day, he was done. He was like, you have, you know, you have a good day, Phil, take care. And he was, that was it. And then, if he was winning, he would play for the next 28, 28 hours. That's what that's how the best player in the world approaches poker. So why would you increase your investment size when you're not doing well? You should be running back to that bread and butter game, playing lower stakes tournaments, playing lower stakes games to feel good, to feel like I do know how to play this. Even when I was playing MTTs on my own up to 5Ks and 10Ks, I go back and play $20 sit and goes for a day just three hours in the morning then go watch a movie because I just wanted to feel like I, I could smash everybody again. And then the next day I'd go in with a lot more confidence. But yeah, I, I totally understand when you're in makeup, you just want to get out of makeup quick or you're in a downswing. You just want to get out of it quick, but it's really counterintuitive to actually being a successful business person within this realm. Yeah. It's like trading, isn't it? They say that the time to sort of cut your losses and stuff is, is it's all about preserving your capital rather right. than trying to like as you say swing for it and people it's crazy some people never take shots until they're in a downswing they start registering and everything mm-hmm. the, like higher games and stuff to try and just that mentality so yeah i think a lot of the, the guys like poker players that they're really good players they've got that math skills and the analytical but they, some of them lack the soft skills that you're on about as well like that emotional sort of toughness to, to do things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think when you come up in a, many of these people came up in very privileged socioeconomic backgrounds and socio is so socioeconomic backgrounds. There we go. And that's it. There we go. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't have to cut it or whatever, but you know, if you grow up and everything was pretty easy for you and then poker is just being an ass you know, you're just going to feel like I 
you know, this, this game owes me, I guess is how you said it. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the, you do have to kind of respect that poker is this devil of a pinball machine at times. It's just really, it's really random and it doesn't really care who gets the lucky run. And you can just, just as soon tilt that thing and it'll never work for you again. And there's a lot of guys, I don't know, I couldn't name more than five people who were around when I started in 2006 that are around right now. And I think it's because Mm -hmm. a lot of people just feel like poker owes them when really the fact you can sit in your office and just play cards for a living, nobody owes you anything. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I got one of my first lessons with you, you said something like that that really... So I was going through a period where I was getting deep in these. It was when I was playing like MTTs rather than you know the one eighties or the sit and goes and stuff. And there were so many brutal like thirteens, elevens, this that. And you were like, just think when you get there, it's like, well, I'm just lucky to be plugged into an internet connection and a laptop in like a, a warm house. You know, there's people starving in the world, and it's quite sensationalist, but it's a really good way of just grounding people. Right, you know, and right. just sort of like, I mean, what are you really moaning about? You know, it's like what's happening in the world just now. And it's like you're moaning because you lost that a game or, you know, something like that. Yeah, it's really. Um, yeah. If you make I tell a lot of my horses like, you know, there's some I have absolute control with and they're they have to like when I say jump, they have to say how high. And if they're just getting whiny, I say, I want you to write me a report on some volunteer work you do this week. And then when you see a guy come in who is working his ass off, lost his job, and, you know, he's just, he's just going to the soup kitchen or something like that, you're going to – when you go back home and you get to sit in your air-conditioned room and play poker, you're probably not going to be as whiny and you're probably going to get to work. And it seems extreme, but if you read that in a book, you go, wow, that's pretty hardcore. That's pretty mm-hmm. cool. But then when it comes to people's own lives, they won't do that kind of thing. I don't have to – one of the things I like – my fiance used to run a clinic, uh, very far away from my house. I helped her get it closer to my house because she's a, she's a physical therapist and you know, she has people come in who literally ruin their back working to provide for their family for 30 years. And they're having difficulty just walking, just sitting down. And Mm -hmm. you know, for them just being able to do their job that maybe they don't even like is, would be a privilege to them right now because they're hurting right now that they can't do it. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, when I see that every day, my complaining level has gone to absolutely nothing. I just yeah. I can't even do it anymore. They're, it's but humbling. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is kind of sensational, sensational, but it's, yeah, it is humbling. And you do need to focus on, there's a lot of chess masters that would love to just get paid to do what they do, but they work at a steel mill or something, yeah. something equally ridiculous. There's a lot of musicians who are, more intelligent than you and I ever will be, and they don't make a cent, you know, yeah, doing what they do. I know. Anyway, so well, I mean, I'm glad. I, 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 thought about, I thought about taking, like, a voluntary job for a little while, but as long as it was after two in the afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Don't wake me up. Don't wake <laughs> yeah, me up. Don't, don't wake me up. Uh, no, it's something that, you know, you sort of think, like, you know, to do something and just get you out there and, and whatever, but it is a good way to look at things. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, we're looking to try and make this podcast interactive. And uh, if you want to tweet in questions, then do so to myself at oneouter.com or to Alex, which is at The Assassinato. And just anything you want, poker, 
poker life, anything. Uh, what film recommendations that Alex got? Alex watches a lot of films, so uh, movies for you American guys, <laughs> and uh, so so do I. You know, so anything at all. Um, we've had quite a few in. Uh, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six here. Uh, there was more than six, but these are the sort of ones that a few people have tweeted in, like similar questions and stuff. So we start with the first one. It was from Alex Folks, which is at a folk on Twitter, and it was um, strategies for. He'd love to hear you talk about speed poker and how the strategies differ. Uh, for the state of the game you're in and basically sort of an overall strategy thought process for Zoom rush poker. And I, I think I think he means tournaments. Tournaments. He doesn't specify, but let's you spoke about Zoom tournaments earlier. So so let's say Zoom Zoom tournaments. Well, uh, let's talk about Zoom tournaments. To be honest, this is something I've never articulated, teached upon or anything. So I have to think raising the button yeah becomes a lot more profitable because if uh, somebody it's just so likely the small blind is already qu hit quick fold you know small blind Patrick Antonius can barely make this position profitable if he's a regular it's really likely he just maybe he's uh, maybe normally he'd wait around for somebody to fold to him and he would raise with jack seven off but when he's in the small blind of a rush tournament, he's really likely to fold maybe even like jack nine. So his range is going to get constricted, which means the, especially if you're playing zoom on poker stars where the ante structure is more significant, your open only needs to work 43, 45% of the time. If you two X, it's really, really likely to succeed that often. If you open from the button, cut off our small blind, because so many people are hitting auto fold. Uh, the other thing is if you do see, like just a murderer's row of players behind you and you have a mediocre hand, just let it go. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll pass up on, say, you have pocket sixes under the gun with or pocket fives under the gun with 21 big blinds, but there's a number of really good players behind you. And mm -hmm. you feel as if your hand might be an absolute bluff. When you fold there, you don't get a new set of players. In Zoom or Rush Poker, you do get that. The other thing is, you need to pay attention. This is one of the biggest mistakes I ever saw. You, if Phil Ivey were in a tournament room and they said, Phil Ivey gets to play 220 hands this level at his table, but you only get to play 50, Alex Fitzgerald, because you both have equal stacks and we want to give the edge to Phil Ivey, I'd say that's, uh, I'd say that's BS. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'd be like, you're going to give him more hands, more time to wait, more calls more hands at the same blind level that's not fair to me you know i i this is the same reason people get angry when somebody's stalling at their table and they have the big stack if they know what to do with it they want to play as many hands as uh imperium is playing in another table otherwise yeah. you don't really have the chance to exacerbate your uh your edge right now however if you're paying if you're playing less tables that sunday and you're really hitting the quick fold button every time it's a marginal open with marginal people and you're really focusing, you're going to get so many more hands in per level than the regs who are 12 tabling. They threw this up on the side. Less is more when it comes to learning at poker. Brian Townsend says he never plays more than four tables. Most of the best cash game players, you know, who by the way could kick the ass of any tournament player. I know, I know 200 NL guys who could be any MTT or I know. And these guys do not play many tables.
because they're trying to learn. If you mm. pick a Sunday where there's a rush tournament, you just decide to play a couple tournaments, up your equity, start firing through the hands you know you can't open. You know, And if it's just on the fence, you're not sure, don't even think about it, just fold. Now, here are the spots that people do play horribly in those spots. First one is they don't fold the three bets that much, as much as you'd think they would. If they could just fold and go to a new hand, you'd think that'd make a lot of people fold. If the guy's default his fold to three bet is higher than 65% anyway. That means he'll probably just go into the, his normal mode. But if he's on the fence, he's one of these guys that knows he has to fight with you. If you keep three betting him, say a guy like I'm the nuts, he's probably going to be a little amped up going through these hands a little faster. And it's really speeding up his Sunday session. So maybe he'll be feeling the adrenaline. What you don't want to do is three bet in preflop. What you want to do is take advantage of hopefully he is thinking the same way you're thinking, opening a little more in late position because people might be folding. And you want to call and you want to ch check raise a number of boards because that overly large opening range, when combined with somebody that C-bets too much, which is pretty much every tournament player, means on most of the boards the guy's not going to have a pair 50 60% of the time. So you can check raise almost to the size of the pot and it's really likely to be a profitable play. And he's likely to fight with you pre-flop because that's socially acceptable now. Hey, what are you, what are you going to do? I jack seven suited. I five bet jam. That's what I do, man. You know, I got to stay aggressive. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> if, you, if the guy has nothing and he has to three bet in uh, most of his chips, the guy is going to feel much stupider, especially big check raises are largely seen as pretty strong and if he can just go to another table where he doesn't have to deal with some guys check raising him he's really likely to pass there when he has bottom pair when he has these hands that maybe he'd freak out with like two overcards and a gut shot maybe he'd want to peel a decent sized check raise if he was if he'd been dealing with you for an hour and he knew you were kind of an aggressive player if he doesn't know because he's been going through all these different tables because he's playing too many tables to properly accommodate a rush or zoom poker tournament then he, he's probably just going to speed right past that and not think about it yeah that pretty mm -hmm. that pretty much summarizes it yeah well i feel like just keeping that to myself and editing that out of the podcast. <laughs> no, not, not enough people are uh, one thing i've learned is not enough people listen and even those who a lot of people just approach poker education as if it were entertainment they might yeah. take, they might take a piece of it I love it when a kid takes every piece of it because I feel like you should be exploiting me more. I shouldn't be giving this out, but it's uh, it it tends to work out pretty. Most people are if you tell a typical MTT grinder just play eight tables this Sunday, not 16, 95 out of 100 are not going to do it. So you're still going to be able to exact that edge in a Zoom MTT. Well, it's it's like I read in a book about trading. Uh, guy's a billionaire, and he set up a little sort of like stable, you know, of turtle traders. They were called the turtles. Mm. And uh, he gave them the set of rules, money management, when to buy, when to sell signals, everything for trading commodities. And they all became millionaires. And he said he could put those instructions in the national newspaper and say, follow this to a T, you know, and you will become a millionaire. And he says like 99% of people wouldn't do it. That's because they'll, they'll go through 
they think that they know, they want to find the way that they know and they'll maybe hit swings and stuff and they won't go through them and, you know, and stuff like that. He's like, it doesn't matter if I put it in black and white, people won't follow it, you know? That's a, that's a really mind-bending statement. But yeah, yeah there's uh, some books I think are really interesting. Uh, How We Decide, uh, it really spoke to that topic. How We Decide, Fooled by Randomness, and uh, what was the other one? Your Money and Your Brain. They talk, it's so interesting to see that, like, uh, neurological doctors, uh, neuroscientists, uh, and people who study neuroeconomics, how much in your brain goes against you <clears throat> when you are trying to invest properly? And how much, and, and with something with poker, of course, it's obviously going to attract, like, lazier people who didn't want to, most people couldn't even get a degree that went into poker. I couldn't get a degree. I was too bored all the time. And I, I just didn't have the discipline. Actually, poker just beat it into me. But, you know, in, that doesn't exactly translate well to success in an investing forum. Anyhow, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off from all the questions. No, that's cool. So uh, that was for Alex, folks. Uh, there's a great, you know, great info there on Zoom slash Rush tournaments, whatever it's called now, speed poker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I right. think stars Fast, fast all. forward, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So the next one was, uh, where are we? Uh What's his name? Mickey Weisman. That's at Mickey Weisman on Twitter. Uh, he said, H. No, I'm reading it just stuff there. Heads up strategy in MTTs when you're deep with 40 plus big blinds in play. Um, it's quite vague. Uh, I, I, can, me, like, I can work on it. Can, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> there we go. Heads up strategy in MTTs for 40 plus big blinds. Well, I mean, one of the first questions you want to ask yourself is, do I have an edge on this guy or don't I? If you think the guy is pretty good, probably better than you, there's nothing, there, there, there is no shame in admitting that. You just have to, you should probably go procure a rejam chart, a four-bed jam uh, equity calculator, and unexploitable jam charts. And should you go down to 30 something if you with 40 big blinds perhaps you open he keeps three betting you look at the minimum thing you can be four betting versus a wide three betting range and start doing it more make this guy play big pots don't let him just get away with three betting you and taking a jab at you it's like if a terrorist goes up to you with a gun to your head and says get in the car you know there's a 99% chance if you fight, you're going to get killed, but you probably need to fight with him anyway because if you go into the car, it's all over. Your only mm -hmm. shot is to go after him. Or when you go with, uh, if you're going to fight Mike Tyson, if you just want to go the distance with him, he's just, back in the day, he was just going to knock your ass out. He was too technically proficient. He was too strong. If you just went in like a psycho taking random shots, at, you could just get a lucky one in there and possibly win. Now, Fortunately, with poker, even if I've studied poker every day my whole life, Phil Ivey's little sister could beat Phil Ivey. If you just keep getting it in with these slight pieces of equity, he's just going to have to – what normally good players do is they go, I'm just going to wait this guy out to make a big mistake, and they wait a little too long. And then they go – they start panicking, and maybe they, they'll take a slight edge anyway. But if you get it all in and you're a 5% dog, that's fine because you were dead if you played it out. So mm -hmm. that's one way to, and if you do not, if you think the guy's better than you, do not get involved out of position. 
You don't know how to play flops. You don't know how to analyze him. Don't play out of position. Play your big pots in position. Try to get involved every time you're on the button. And when he tries to engage you out of position, just fold. Don't deal with it. If you're going to three bet as a bluff, three bet bigger. Remember that big blind is not part of your bet. So if the guy opens to 2,000 and you make it seven, your three bet size is actually six. Because the big <laughs> – nice, Barry. <laughs> Drop the pencil. <laughs> nice. If, any, if anybody doubted we were just starting, they do not doubt yeah. it anymore. But <laughs> like if the big blind's 1,000 you make, and the guy makes it two and you make it – he makes it seven out of the big blind. He's actually only making it six. So with the Annie's out there, his bet might need to work 60 65% of the time. But in many people's mind, if you just potted it out of position, you're going to go with the hand. And if you're bluffing, that needs to work like 75 80% of the time. That's a huge bet. I've never seen anybody but a mediocre player with ace-queen off or pocket eights do that. And you don't want the guy taking the flop in position. You want position becomes very important if there's a flop turn in river. For the same reason that jamming 17 big blinds from the small blind makes position irrelevant, making a huge three bet that either dissuades your opponent from playing at all or makes your opponent completely committed makes the flop turn in river meaningless. You can just give up if he continues because he has too tight of a range. Now that's if you don't think the guy if that's if you think the guy has an edge on you. And if you just keep playing in position, don't get engaged out of position. And just four betting, you know, you figure out, look at his three bet big blind versus steel add a couple percent because your head's up uh, and you just find out work with a four bet jam calculator. If you've not done this work outside of the table, it's time to start doing this and start seeing like the minimum hands you can jam versus his opening range. Remember, it's probably going to tighten up after you do it the first few times. But if one of the first couple times he three bets you, you jam on him. Then he does it. He does it again, thinking you're not going to do it again. You jam on him. Then he gets tighter, so he doesn't feel like he can three bet you out of the big blind, and you just won't play with him out of position. Eventually, a lot of these guys are adrenaline addicts, and they thought, you know, it's heads up, it's time to play, and mm-hmm. they start getting ahead of themselves. They try to. They start trying to make things happen. They start trying to call out of position with goofier hands and get overly committed. And you'll be amazed how just waiting people out will work against them you have to something very interesting i believe jason coon said in a one outer doc uh, one outer.com uh <laughs> what's it what's phil Galf on site run it once run it once it had something to do with one but yeah <laughs> something he said is you know there's just such a big difference between second and first place that playing heads up is so crucial it adds so such a significant percentage to your roi if you can yeah. calm down heads up and a lot of people play like I've got nothing less left to lose. I there's no more payout jumps to, you know, kind of ladder up on, mm-hmm. so to speak. I'm just going to go for broke. And if you just wait it out versus those people, you'll be amazed how many people give it up and just barrel off and barrel off. Now, the other thing is, if you think you're better than the guy, start using his post flop tendencies against them. Most empty tiers know how to play pre flop if they Look for the leak post-flop. There was an article I wrote for Bluff Magazine. If you're following me on Facebook at facebook.com slash assassinato. No, just sorry. But uh, Or on Twitter. <laughs> I'll probably be posting this stuff a lot. But there was one called being optimal is not uh, – optimal doesn't mean being solely profitable or something less wordy. But 
a lot of times the preflop stuff is good if you have no other if you have no other idea what to do. Notice the strategy I just described to you is all many MTTers use. However, if you can find an imbalance postflop, that tends to be better than what than uh, taking it to a guy preflop. Because if a guy just freaks out and snaps off with a seven suited and you have tens, you don't have a huge edge. However, if a guy opens too many hands on the button, C bets everything and never double barrels the turn, now he's got a huge problem. You know you can hang on with close to anything because he never double barrels. You can flat out of the big blind with more mediocre hands. An ace-8 isn't necessarily a three-bet bluffing hand, an ace-8 off, because he's really unlikely to double barrel a, a board and without the ace, especially if it comes ace-high. Additionally, he's c-betting such a wide range on the flop, you can check-raise him enough of the time that you're going to keep picking up pots that way. Uh, they're in a lot of times a guy has a river aggression frequency that's like close to nothing which is mm -hmm. there's a lot of showdown monkeys in tournament poker a lot of guys that could never beat 50 nl but they they've learned how to rejam the right stacks and they can be stoned 80 hours a week and that was their life's goal when they get to a <laughs> river they're freaked out they're like oh my god this could be the tournament if you make a small bet they'll be relieved they'll never think about raising over the top of you as a bluff they'll just call with anything value bet mercilessly against those guys. If their river aggression frequency is really high, check to them anytime a draw misses or anytime you have a mediocre hand you didn't think was getting much value from a C-bet anyway and let them turn their small pairs and miss flush draws into bluffs. That's a very short answer for a very long, complicated problem. But the first part I spent more time on because when you're learning, I had a real problem with heads up. I really dreaded heads up. I love heads up now, but you would be amazed how many times I just, you know, got myself a cup of tea, kicked back, just kept playing on the button, and people would just freak out and give away the tournament. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can tell, I mean, how that was amazing. Uh, that's People are going to need to listen back to that a couple of times because <laughs> a lot of what you said there, you know, is a lot of information. I mean, I dropped my pencil during it. Uh, <laughs> So I'm going to be listening to it again because you're so right, especially playing tournaments, even in things like the 180s that I'm playing, in terms of buy-ins, the jump from second to first is huge, you know? Yeah, that's all the uh, flattest structure there is, poker. Yeah, that's it. So um, no, that was, that was great information there. Uh, the next question, I'm trying to think where we'll go with this. We'll, we'll go for this one. Um, Guy Joseph emailed in, how do you combine living expenses from poker while building a bankroll? Uh, that is a fantastic question. Uh, the answer to this a few years ago was very poorly. Uh, <laughs> no, when I, when I started, when I, was, uh, when I was 18, I wanted to become a professional poker player. When I graduated high school, I didn't, I didn't have anything going for me. Nobody, nobody said, you need to take the SATs. Nobody cared. My parents, my teachers, nobody asked. And they said... I think one person asked me what I was going to do after college. I mean, after high school. And it was because it was a school activity. And, but I knew I liked poker, but I knew I was a nervous wreck. I was just always really paranoid all the time. And, uh, mm -hmm. I had some chemical assistance with that at the time. And I knew I would not handle it well if I was on my own. So I went out and got a job. I went out, I, I worked at an Arby's 
Uh, I let me let me see if I can get through all the jobs. I moved Persian carpets. I worked at an Arby's. I was a landscaper. Once I got uh, once I got I tried to do poker for a while. It didn't work. I came back and I did. I got a job commercial fishing uh, up in Alaska, working 18 hour days. It was pretty fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Came back home and I had a lot of money because commercial fishing play, pays pretty well because it could you know potentially kill you. And yeah. uh, I still, I didn't have six months expenses. That was my first rule. I was working a real job. I didn't get to play poker for months. Uh, everybody else was like having the time of their life that summer. I was in Alaska trying not to get myself killed because I'm the most not coordinated person there was, there is, and probably the worst fisherman that ever worked up in Bristol Bay. But <laughs> I, I did it because that was my dream and my dream needed money. Po- mm-hmm. The printing press in poker is your money. You don't want to mess with the printing press just to keep the lights on in your house. And that analogy broke down. But anyway, the, you don't want to mess with what, with what's making you money and you don't want to be constantly drawing from it. So make separate expenses from that. So what I did eventually, I came back home and I had a few thousand dollars. I was doing all right, but I wanted to make sure I had, I think it was nine months expenses. Everybody else said six. I said nine. I'm going to be really together, right? And mm-hmm. I worked a job in security for two months. And then uh, just because I, I I would work eight hours, I would wake up at 1 p.m. every day, go to work from 2 to 10, play tournaments from 11 to the crack of F is what I used to say. But I'm going to try to be a little better about my yeah. my language. 11 to <laughs> 7 and then, you know, go to bed. And just because I'd worked so hard to get up to, up to that, I was so motivated to play that the first month I was playing while still working 40-hour weeks, I made $7,000 when I was, wow. when I was uh, 18 years old. And I was playing $20 tournaments. But just because it built a discipline in me, it made me realize if I could do that real work, this was my dream. And mm-hmm. putting the money aside, when I, and when I started playing poker, I was just bad like just really bad. That first month was kind of a fluke. And I just learned really quickly I was bad. And I was still tearing my hair out because even with all this money saved up, because I was failing, I was thinking, but at the same time, if I ever wanted to take a week off, I could do it whenever I wanted. And then I'd come back and I could see the problems in a fair mind because I'd work for the six months prior to that. Actually, yeah, I mean, commercial fishing and, uh, be, the other jobs were before in high school, but commercial fishing and security up until then. And I, I could relax and focus on it a little more. The big thing is whenever you have extra money or you have a good month, you need to put that aside in some kind of investment, some kind of safe account. Uh, try to forget that it's there because there will come a day you will need it. And you try to play you try to move up slowly. I could, I moved up to high stakes really fast because eventually I did have, you know, nothing to do all day, but play poker. And back in 2006, if you could tie your shoes two times out of three, you could make money at MTTs. And Mm -hmm. I, I did really well, but instead of saving the money and going, okay, here's a couple years expenses. Here's some money for my sister's college. Here's some other money. I just, I just threw it all in MTTs and I wasn't ready and I burned through all of it. I just started playing the hundred R every day and everything. So you want to pay yourself a salary. You want to, you should have really consistent records. 
you should have savings before you play poker professionally. If you don't want to work to get those savings, then you're probably not going to be good enough at, you're probably not going to be disciplined enough to be a professional poker player. Now that doesn't mean you need a lot. They, a lot of my, a lot of my students lived at home originally. If you have a wife and kids, you have a responsibility to have six months expenses minimum and try to keep that nest egg full. But then when you do that, you know, you try to take the money from expenses. But if you, I mean, you try to take the expenses money from your poker bankroll and leave that six months aside. But if you have, a lot of people think you have six months because if you go bust in poker, you want six months to find a job. Well, no, that's not really it. If you have, it's really normal to have three, four losing months. I thought it was so likely I could, it was so likely I'd lose the first six months I played poker when I was 18. I took nine months expenses. What you really want is six months for you to be losing. And then you have another three months to look for your job. And yeah. <laughs> after, yeah. And then if you, uh, now if you find like, this is like the fourth month in a row that you're taking from your savings money and you're not taking from your poker bankroll, maybe it's time to get back into the workforce for a little while and study on your own time. Or maybe it's time to take one month off or something. But these are all luxuries that are not afforded to you unless you save privately. I keep nothing online. My, the few guys that financially depend on any transaction from me right now, at, ever since Full Tilt, I've been paranoid, but it's a good habit. I just don't yeah. keep the money online because I'll, I'll want to start playing like I used to. I'll start playing 510, 1020. I'll start, mm. uh, you know, like, hey, I got money on Full Tilt. Give me money on this site. Or I'll start, you know, my friend uh, is playing. I'm like, hey, I'll put you in that tournament. But since all the money's gone and put in, in a savings account and put into other, uh, put into CDs, uh, you guys call CDs something else in Europe? Certificate. It might. You know, yeah, it might be like bonds. Yeah, bonds. Into like bonds. savings bonds. Yeah. Yeah, just making sure you can't touch it, and you'll be amazed. I play, like, you'll be amazed how much money just accumulates if you're saving all the time, but you kind of keep yourself in attack mode. Like, I only have this much to work with. This is mm-hmm. my bread and butter. Of course, you still want to move up, but again, you want to make sure that you. If you have a lot more money on the side, when you move up, there's going to be a lot less stress, which is not something I got the first time around. Yeah. I, I read a really good article by uh, that Jenna Fear, you know, Pocket Fives? Yeah. And uh, it was about uh, bankroll management in terms of like a percentage what to take. And she wrote it out and it was like, you know, have 200 buy-ins when you're talking about tournaments. Uh, which is, you know, what you you know, sort of say sure as that, well. You know, are you sure that's Jennifer or was that Chris Fox Wallace? No, it was, it was Jennifer. She said uh, two hundred buy-ins, uh, but this is that maybe that was him originally. But it was Jennifer that said the next bit that, that two hundred buy-ins, but take out in terms of paying yourself, you know, like a salary from poker right. in terms of with withdrawing, take eight percent of your buy-in. So if you played uh, $110 sitting goes in a day, uh, you know, the buy-in would be $1,000. So you take out 8%, which is $80. So you would take out $80 regardless of your results. Mm. And what she said that does is it keeps you at a level where your edge is enough, you know, you're consistently beaten. So if you're, but it'll allow you Mm. to move up. So if you move up to a certain level, you will. You have to be beating that level for you know right, X right. percentage 
or or that reel will automatically force you back down to the level that you are most profitable at. That's really and interesting. Yeah. It, yeah, it was. I just came across it a few months ago, and it was written a good few years ago. But even to this day, there's like you see the guys like commenting on it, and they've all got like uh, massive, uh, you know, like the the pocket five badge. This so many million right, cash, right. and they're like, this is the best article on like bankroll, you know, management or whatever, like ever written. Um, I'll put it up on the post of this first uh, podcast as well. Just for guys that are you know interested in it as well, uh, but yeah, it seemed to be quite a good uh, quite a good method. But I think I think the old thing is like I even know with when I've been building roles, it's always that you're cruising along fine, fine. You then don't maybe aren't winning as much, and then life expenses. If you're that's why I focus now on a lot of other things, like you say, bread and butter bets outside the poker. Like mm-hmm. I'm lucky that I, I do you know like the antiques and stuff like that, and other bits and pieces and. I think it's important to try and do something like that. And I don't think there's any shame in like taking, you know, a part-time job for guys that are starting out and take a part-time job and build up poker. And it's probably a lot more healthier than just jumping with two feet in and trying to grind it out. And I, you do become, you know, a lot more pressurized and stuff when your rent money's on the table, so to speak. Right. No, and it's, it teaches you discipline. I know a lot of poker players that never went to school, never went to anything and then when they have to be disciplined within poker they just have no idea how to do it i had to yeah you know i had to fill out reports i had to wear a uniform i had to escort people up elevators during emergencies i had to you know i had to confer with my boss up in alaska and get screamed at for doing a lot of things wrong and realize i'm not the center of the universe i am expendable i'm lucky to even be here and not just in you when you drop that entitlement you realize you're really lucky to learn all the things you can learn and mm. to just even be having a job so it is humbling i think it's part of the it's a good it's a good part of growing up even i i think if you could go to university that would be even better i tell all my students that are like 2 years into university like you know they're like oh i'm really doing well at poker i don't know if i should continue just just put in two years. You, you were doing well playing poker on the side anyway. Just finish. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I really wish I got to go to college. I really wish I got to grow up in a college and, you know, with people my own age going through their own things as opposed to on the tour, you know, with a lot of older drug addicts and professional gamblers. And it's not as glamorous a life as a lot of people think it is. So – I think it's good to stay in school. I think it's good to get a normal job. It'll teach you discipline on the way in. Yeah. Well, I remember saying that when I had Barry Greenstein on the podcast. I was like, you know, I, I finish university and maybe think, like, I wish I'd spent that time. I remember just maybe – I didn't play poker during university, but I remember getting a book, and it was like how to play poker, like late-night poker edition or something. Right. And it was like an introduction to Hold'em, and the night before – I'd lost like 800 pounds playing blackjack, you know? <laughs> and so the, the book was delivered the next day from Amazon. And I thought this is, I just, you know, like anybody else thought poker was just, you know, normal gambling. Right. And I was like, this is the last thing I fucking need. And I sent the book back. <laughs> I sent the book back for a refund, right? Oh, <laughs> that was like awesome. in 2000, 2002 when I was at university. Wow. And I sent it back and, um, you know, I always think, fuck, I wonder if I kept that book and got into poker then what might have been. But Barry Greenstein was like to me, 
no, look, he's like finishing university. You're a much more rounded person. It's like you've obviously like the way you've set up this site and stuff and you approach people. It's like you've met skills. Who's to say that you would have done anything like that or became, you know, what you are today? So, you know, if you hadn't done that. So it's kind of true, I think. No, that's a really good point. Stay stay in school, kids. (laughs) One of my greatest regrets is not going to university. I, I took university classes constantly just for fun. After I became a professional poker player, you get to meet a lot of people and you get to, you should enjoy learning. I mean, if you want to be good at poker, you need to enjoy learning and learning about other things is a great way to make you more excited to learn about a game. And yeah, yeah, I think it's a, I mean, the guy that comes to mind is for us, Jocka finished his uh, business degree in uh, U of I, University of Illinois. And he's probably Mm. the most well-rounded person I know in poker. As far as yeah. how he handles things, how he talks to people, how he handles his business interests and whatnot. And you can just see how that's radiated. And I mean, he still built himself up in the poker world when he was going to school. And then I think it was at that same school, Taylor KB finished his degree, even when he was starting card runners and crushing, uh, what's his name? Spirit Rock heads up at whatever, <laughs> I think it was 5,100 was the biggest limit of the day. Yeah. But, I mean, I did economics, and a lot of that was statistics and game theory and stuff. And when I look back Ooh. now, I mean, that really has helped me with concepts, not just in poker, but, like, other aspects. Just how to think about things, you know, critically. And it definitely does. Uh, I think that it didn't really teach me discipline. I still lack that a lot. <laughs> but, but, I mean, um, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, you need both. You need the way to look at things. That Actually, what you just said is what I struggled with incredibly in American football, I was a lineman, and if I just went home and I practiced, you know, I mean, not even if I just put in the hours, I just got faster than the other guy, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And I could knock people down more effectively, and there was an instant gratification, instant reward. And then to think if somebody said, sit back, look at this playbook, and think about how you could more effectively accomplish your goal, I'd be, whoa, like, I don't, yeah. you know, that's not emotional, and that's not just putting the hours in, what are, what are you talking about, bro? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is, it's just, I suppose, you know, everything happens for a reason, and uh, it's that thing that you say, I think it's good to have a backup, but it's also good to, I mean, you know, no regrets sort of thing as well, I mean, you look at your life, you know, without university, You've done all right for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think I'm the exception, not the rule. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's definitely, I no. I mean, there's a lot of times college teaches you how to work for other people. If you really want to break it down, if you yeah. want to join the workforce, if you don't like a lot of variance in your life, if you'd like to, you know, and you or maybe you just enjoy one of the fields that's more traditional. College mm-hmm. is a pretty good fit for you. If you yeah. if you really enjoy living life on your terms, doing your own thing, co- maybe college won't be the greatest idea for you. But yeah, you're yeah. you're right. I mean, it's a balance. It's a yada yada. We can, whatever. We, we we've beaten this horse to death and ran over it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I put it this way: I would never go back to university ever again. I mean, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah ten ten thousand word dissertations. I left oh everything to the last God. minute and. Oh, my you know. God. <laughs> Although I, I wrote mine on the economics of eBay auctions, so I did it in, like, a week or something, you know, because I knew all about, like, selling on eBay at the time. That's what I did. That's a pretty cool so, uh, topic. Yeah, I just did it on that. It's quite cool. Okay, so we're looking to keep it around the sort of hour mark. Uh, I've 
from experience, a lot of my podcasts, I've had Neil Channing, the longest one still, at two hours, 46 minutes. I know wow. lots of people have downloaded it and stuff. I think people sort of start, you know, zoning out after about the hour mark and stuff. So um, next time uh, when we get together, we'll deal with a couple of questions I have outstanding here. Um, it'll be adjusting to regs in the daily MTTs and 30 big blind strategy in tournaments. So there's a little bit of uh, homework for you, Alex, for the next two All weeks. All right, or sounds good. And uh, just again, uh, we want you to get in with in touch with more questions. So uh, tweet them to me at oneouter.com. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M. And to Alex, which is at the Assassinato. That's at T-H-E-A-S-S-A-S-S-I-N-A-T-O. You can also contact Alex if you like what he, you know, if you like the cut of his jib. Uh, <laughs> you can contact him at assassinatocoaching at gmail.com and he can arrange to, you know, get one-to-one coaching, you know, over Skype, etc. with you and really sort of take your game to the next level. And our sponsors, pokerxfactor.com, you can get $70 off sign up. Just use one out of 70 and that's not one of these codes that's like all around on the internet. They don't have an affiliate program. The only reason we can offer that discount is because they, they sponsor OneOuter.com podcast. So get yourself $70 off there with uh, OneOuter70 coupon code. And uh, let me think. PokerHeadRush.com is Alex's site. It's always got lots of great articles on it. He puts a lot of his bluff articles and stuff on there as well. And it's always worth a look uh, with Jack Welsh, uh, Alex Life Coach as well, post a lot of um, non-poker related stuff, but actually ends up being related to poker in a, in a sort of really nice way. Um, is there anything else you want to say, Alex, to the next show? Or uh, It sounds great. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate being on this show too, Barry. It was a, It's a great time. I'm looking forward to doing more of these. Yeah, well, it's like Alex has had a bit of a cough and stuff today, and in Scotland, it's like minus two just now, so <laughs> I've got a little bit of a cold, and I was like, oh, you know, but when you've scheduled things, you got to just get on and do it, and every time I get together with Alex, um, he knows this himself, he's great value, and I learn a lot personally, and from a real selfish reason, that's why I do the podcast a lot of the times as well, but hopefully you just can all learn something from it as well, and because uh, I, I really enjoy that, Alex. I, thank you, sir. The pleasure is all mine. I'm glad he took something from it. It's just fun to be able to talk about this for a living. Yeah, it's, it's cool. So uh, we'll hopefully do another one of these in roughly about two weeks. Uh, we've had some stick with me saying it's semi-regular <laughs> podcast from uh, Marco over, uh, you know, at the... I was waiting to say Quad Jacks, but he's no longer there. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll try and keep this regular sort of two weeks and um, look forward to all your questions coming in and Hopefully we've got loads to talk about next time. Uh, Thanks for listening. Cheers.